This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey listeners, if you're just joining us, you may want to go back to chapter one, Into the Mine, to get the full story of Hemingway's Picasso. Fred and Betty, the ceramic Steve Coe smuggled out of Cuba, had quite the alleged provenance. Made by Picasso, given to Hemingway, taken by Steve for Pablo Escobar, three giants of the 20th century. But Fred and Betty's fate, and how much it was ultimately worth, rested on whether or not it could be authenticated as a genuine Picasso artwork. Pablo Picasso one of the most lauded and widely recognized artists to this day, was also that rare artist who was internationally famous and successful in his lifetime. But we wanted to know more about who he was really, the man behind the myth. I'm Leah Carroll, and from something else, this is Hemingway's Picasso. To get the best out of Picasso, you had to be an animal or a small child, and I was probably both. When Anthony Penrose met Picasso, he was that small child, just three years old. So I just I just loved him. There was something incredibly magnetic about him. He always was so welcoming and funny and full of good, funny jokes, and he'd love to do things, you know, that were kind of sometimes quite outrageous, but... Always, always friendly. Anthony is the son of the legendary American photographer Lee Miller and the British surrealist artist Sir Roland Penrose. Being artists themselves, they found themselves in the same globe-trotting circles as Picasso in the 1920s and 30s. And they hit it off with him right away. There was, it was a relationship that was one of shared passions. He shared with the surrealists the ideas of, of free love, of peace and freedom and justice and um, a, a hatred of the bourgeois and a hatred of fascism. Picasso had moved to the south of France in 1946 with his mistress, Francois Gillot. This is the house Anthony would visit during his childhood summers. Picasso lived in the most incredibly modest style. His house was totally chaotic. It was no, there was no grandeur about it, but he just lived there almost a kind of a, in, in a way of snubbing the grandeur of the house, which was this big sort of Art Nouveau place. There were always family around. There was uh, usually children. Picasso had four children. His oldest was Paolo, then Maya, and then with Francois, he had Claude and Paloma. They seemed to enjoy children, and they, they were very kind of indulgent towards me. I mean, Francoise, it was wonderful, because here's me coming from 
post-war England where there's still food rationing and she'd have all these patisserie and wonderful fruits and things like that that I was not familiar with. And it was, I just thought this is absolute paradise and she was so generous and kind with everything. The Picasso home was filled with animals that the children could play with. What really entertained me was all the pets. Uh, There were big birds, caged birds, parrots. There was the goat. There was dogs and cats and, and all that kind of thing. Us children were given a huge amount of freedom and we could go anywhere and do anything and pick up the works and play with them. Unlimited dessert, exotic animals, a heavenly escape where a child could run free. Antony's parents enjoyed their visits with Picasso just as much as he did. One of the ideals his parents shared with Picasso was the rejection of traditional concepts, like marriage. My parents had a unique and very open marriage. Um, you know, they had, they had masses of partners uh, outside of their marriage, but they never allowed that to matter. You went to bed with whoever you wanted. And, you know, the men thought this was rather a good idea, but Lee said, well, if it's good enough for you guys, it's good enough for me. And she had the same arrangement with my dad, you know. So she found a lover in Picasso. My mum saw him slightly differently because for her, he was wildly physically attractive. There's no question about that, that he and and my mum almost certainly had a liaison, as you might call it. Miller and Picasso had a well-documented relationship, and they immortalized that affair in each other's artwork. And he painted her six times. She photographed him more than a thousand times. Picasso was so inspired by this way of life, the rejection of traditional norms and the rebellion against the establishment. You can see it in the constantly evolving themes of his work. Even at the height of his career, he was never afraid to change mediums and do something wildly different. It was radical. This is the Picasso Antony knew. A man who embraced free love and pacifism. And a man who was, in many ways, a child himself. Antony looked up to him as a hero. Well, I, I, saw, I saw him in, in, in a very different light. You know, I saw him in the light of a child. And that was very uncomplicated. But now, Antony is an adult. He knows his parents talked with each other about being in a consensually open relationship. But after listening to what some of Picasso's former lovers had to say, Antony realized Picasso might not have recognized his partners as equals, and that his hero might not have been quite who he thought he was. More on that after the break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. 
Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. It might be more convenient to view this man with childlike wonder, but we know that there was more to Picasso than met the eye. And this was especially apparent when he interacted with adults. If adults touched the works, you know, the sculptures or the paintings, he'd get quite, uh, he would get quite uncomfortable about that. But there was a capriciousness about him. He could change his mood very quickly. You know, he, I think in many ways, enjoyed teasing people and sometimes being quite cruel in, 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 in the way that he teased. Um, and this was counterbalanced by being also incredibly generous. As an adult, Anthony now knows that his friend Picasso wasn't just someone who had open ideas about love and peace. And so I have to make my mind up as to, am I going to believe the man was a monster? Am I going to believe that he was um, not a monster? You know, my experience of him was as a very kind person. Others portray him as being somebody who was a very abusive to women. Picasso's mistress, Francois, was 40 years younger than him. She was his muse for a bit. He'd paint her with youthful hair bouncing around her face. But everything seemed to change when their children were born. She was just, I think, really kind of like worn out with it all. Um, And the fact that he was too, perhaps, mercurial as a husband. He seemed jealous that she focused her attention on their children. So he began to paint Francois in a more austere light. He no longer painted her nude form or her youthful appearance. Instead, he put her behind the children, in the shadows. She was a highly intelligent woman, a very talented artist. And it's not surprising that she didn't want to be, you know, crushed down by her role as Picasso's partner. Uh, And I think possibly it got to the point where she just felt that for her own, her own sanity, her own personality, her own artwork, her own children, she just needed to, to get out. Francois decided to leave him in 1953. And she wouldn't go silently. Over the next few years, she worked on her memoir, My Life with Picasso, which she published in 1964. She recounted the emotional abuse that she suffered during her 10-year relationship with Picasso. She claimed Picasso deliberately pitted his mistresses and children against each other. She wrote, He had a kind of bluebeard complex that made him want to cut off the heads of all women he had collected in his private museum. But he didn't cut the heads entirely off. He preferred to have life go on, and to have all these women who had shared his life at one moment or another still letting out little peeps and cries of joy or pain and making a few gestures like disjointed dolls just to prove there was some life left in them, that it hung by a thread, and that he held the other end of the thread. Francois said Picasso demanded total control over the women in his life, And Francois's choice to walk out on him and publish this book meant she wouldn't stand for it anymore. And it sent aftershocks into the art world. Picasso's own relationship with his children, Claude and Paloma, never healed. He cut them out of his life. 
Maybe the children knew about the abuse going on behind closed doors during those summers basking in the Mediterranean sun. Or maybe they were just as in the dark as Antony was. Everything Antony felt he knew about Picasso, the romantic, unconventional, brilliant man, the myth he created suddenly shattered. Antony's parents were outraged by the book. I remember overnight at home, the next morning, there were no works by Francoise on the walls. Roland had gone round and taken them all down. I found them many years later after he had died. I found them where he had stashed away in, in, in the attic, in the roof of the house. And I, I was really sad about that because I was particularly fond of these pictures. And there they were gone. I couldn't really get out of my parents why they were so exercised about this. But it was because they felt that she'd been disloyal and betrayed Picasso's trust and confidence in her. And of course, in this situation, they had to take sides. Roland and Lee weren't the only people who reacted negatively to Francois's book. When it first came out, Picasso launched three lawsuits trying to block its publication. And 40 French intellectuals signed a manifesto demanding it be banned. They had to take either Francoise's side or Picasso's side, and they were not going to come down on her side when Picasso was a friend of such long um, commitment to them. And it was an ugly, ridiculously hurtful situation. Francoise certainly went into her relationship with Picasso fully enchanted by this man, hailed as one of the most important artists of all time a man who attracted beautiful models, artists, and intellectuals alike. That gregarious warmth that Antony described had seduced many women, including his own mother, Lee Miller, and possibly even Antony's father, Roland, who some claim was also in love with the artist. Picasso had an effect, almost like a superpower, to put people under his spell. Roland and Lee sided with Picasso, which not only meant ending that friendship with Francois, but also invalidating her experience. Antony had fond memories of Francois feeding him desserts and laughing with his parents over countless bottles of wine late into the night. Had that been real or something he created in his own mind? Nearly four decades later, Antony was writing a biography of his father. He wanted to interview Francois for the book. So he visited her for the first time since his family broke ties with her. He asked for her forgiveness, for his late parents' sake, and for himself. And we just completely let everything that had passed between her and my parents go. And now, today, in our house, we still have her works on the wall, and I love them. For years, Picasso seemed to own Francois' image, just as he owned the images of all his past lovers. He'd call her his muse and depict her in the light he saw fit, either a mistress or a mother, with very little in between. Francois is still alive. She recently turned 100 years old and has become an accomplished artist in her own right. There's a work of hers I'm particularly drawn to, It's been exhibited in the Met several times. It's a simple portrait of a woman staring straight ahead. She's in a collared shirt, her mouth a severe line. She looks serious, like a woman who doesn't suffer fools. 
That woman is Francois Gillot herself. This is one of many self-portraits Francois has made. She's reclaimed her image over and over again. It's an act of defiance and radical self-love. And she's cut that thread that Picasso used to hold. Anthony Penrose is an archivist, photographer, and writer. He's written several books, including The Lives of Lee Miller, Roland Penrose, The Friendly Surrealist, and a children's book, The Boy Who Bit Picasso. If you loved the show, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was reported and produced by India Witkin. This show is hosted and reported by me, Leah Carroll. Senior producer is Pallavi Kotamasu. Associate producer is India Witkin. Editor is Lizzie Jacobs. Original music by Emma Palm. Audio engineer is Josh Gibbs. Fact checker is Erica Gaida. Development producer is Grant Irving. In association with Vespucci Group, based on a story by Joe Flood, executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, Steve Ackerman, Johnny Galvin, Daniel Turkin, and Nick Capp.